0: Hey there, discerning ThoughtBot podcast listener. I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your feedback. There's so many cool things that we'd love to do with all the shows and want to know how you feel about our sponsor reads and the possibility of starting a Patreon-style campaign to make them all possible. If you could head over to tbot.io survey for a super short questionnaire, your input would be much appreciated. That link again is tbot.io survey. And hey, thanks. Hey, everybody. This is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Jack in Stockholm. And this is Build Phase. All right. What you been up to? It's been a while. Yeah, it has. Although I feel like I've been on this show a lot.
1: You, ha- yeah, you have been and I have not been. I think I've missed a few somehow.
0: That's the way it goes.
1: There was a week that mm-hmm. well, I was Life not in the rotation. And, and, and then there was a week that I had something came up. I don't remember what. That's the way it goes. I think actually it's kind of good because this will... I think our listeners will never be able to figure out what our alleged rotation actually is because we deviate from it so very often.
0: Yep. Keep them guessing. Yeah. What have you been up to? What's your work situation?
1: Well, I just today started my new job, which is cool. It's at a company Congrats. called thank you. Company called Dynamo here in Stockholm. Breda, our former mutual colleague is also there. He's been there for about a month. Once again, back to working with Radar, which is nice. Plus some other people that I know, some friends of mine who are also working there, so that's cool. And uh, I don't actually have a project yet, but I will soon. We have some things we're trying to nail down. So it's agency work? Yeah, it's it's a mix. We try to run projects ourselves when we can, and otherwise sometimes the, some of the work is also just like resource consulting filling in a person's needed somewhere and we supply that person and some of the work we're doing is we have some internal projects things that we build and then try to license out for others to use so it's it's an interesting mix and in stockholm we're about 60 people by now wow yeah and it's all focused on mobile apps so the team is roughly in thirds ios and android and backend it's not it's not precise but
0: it's that's roughly the division what does the back-end team specialize in?
1: I would say there is not a specialty in the back-end team. I think there's it's pretty diverse. So I think that, that lets us match a lot of different customers a little bit more easily. If people have existing systems they need help with or need to have additions built on to support some mobile apps, then we can jump on that pretty easily if we have the right person available. So there's very little... I shouldn't say very little. There's not much Rails experience in the back-end team right now, is my understanding. I actually haven't met many people in the back-end team yet, so I've only been there one day, so I'm not really sure, but this is a pretty big mix.
0: Any clients that I would have heard of, or that you can talk about?
1: I don't know the answer to the second question, so I will refrain. (laughs) Actually, I just have no idea what clients were allowed to talk about, although I know on, on the web, there are some clients shown on the website. And those can be spoken of, but I don't know. I just haven't looked in a month or two, so I don't really remember which they are. But, uh, I would say it's mostly bigger companies that we were helping out. Whereas Thoughtbot was mostly trying to focus on startups at Dynamo, we are mostly focusing on who's able to pay us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <Got it. laughs> which I think that was kind of always one of, one of the things that we f- sort of fell on our face on in Stockholm was just the fact that ThoughtBot always likes working with startups and the startup scene in Stockholm or in Europe in general seems very different from what is in the U S where it seems like in the U S if you're in San Francisco and you are a technical person with a cool idea, you can probably find an investor to give you money to help you build it. In Stockholm, it seems to be that you don't get investment money until you have something already essentially done. And so a lot of startups are just working on just, energy and mutual goodwill in the team and no one's getting paid at all. And therefore they also cannot pay consultants to do anything. Hmm. So a lot of, so there we, we, you know, over the years I was working with up, but we met lots of companies who really, really wanted to work with us and really, really had no money. So
0: it's kind of, do you think that limits like what Stockholm based startups are capable of because they just can't get money until you have something?
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think, you know, I talked to some founders who were trying to instead search for getting money from American investors, or at least from English investors, who may be a little bit easier to deal with than the Swedish investors. But yeah, I think it is a problem. And I think on the other hand, Sweden has this sort of safety net. So if you're young and are used to living cheaply, you can maybe survive on, I don't know... (laughs) essentially welfare and maybe help from living in your parents basement or something for a while but i don't really know yeah i think it's it's interesting because because stockholm has this reputation as being this major tech capital which it is in a lot of ways you know spotify is here and skype is here and mojang is here but if you look at a lot of these companies well like for instance mojang in particular that was you know my understanding is Notch was building Minecraft literally living in his parents' basement for the first few years. Like he did not get any kind of funding or anything. And I think Spotify, they had, they had funding early on actually, but uh, I don't know. I guess my, my assumption would be that if Spotify were started in San Francisco, you know, the same group of people, the same skills, the same talents, they probably would have had a lot more money, a lot more of us money already 10 years ago. And they would have been able to, probably able to ramp up a much bigger team and make a bigger impact even more early in the game than they were able to so i don't know
0: yeah i wonder how something like that would play out because you, you do hear about a lot of cases here where maybe sometimes a startup gets a little too much money to start and it forces them to not have to focus on what they're doing right flooding the engine right i guess and then they fail I appreciate the conservative approach. It just seems a little too extreme to expect serious entrepreneurs to build something without any sort of capital to work with whatsoever.
1: Right. And I think that in spite of that, I think I've seen companies that even with very little capital can still be lacking that focus, right? Like I've seen plenty of companies who believe that, okay, in order for us to release a product, we must have a web web application and an iOS app And an Android app and release those all together, full featured on day one and nothing else, you know, and I, and I feel like that's, that's the wrong approach for almost any venture. And especially when you have no money, you know, when you have no money, build the one thing, the thing that that will give the most bang for your buck first and then build out the rest. I mean, that's, you know, I'm convinced that this is almost always the right way to go, but I've seen a lot of people who are young people straight out of school. They have a lot of ambition and they have a, maybe a cool idea and get bogged down in thinking, okay, we've got to start enormous because, you know, on day one, we have to have all this functionality and they haven't yet gone through the pain of the learning curve of how to build the business in the first place and how to build one system in the first place. And they want to release a complex web of multiple systems all at once on the first day. And it's, you know, I think that it's, that tendency to overreach can exist even in a situation where there's very little money. So on the other hand, they're not, you know, by doing so, if they have no money, they're not burning as much. They're not wasting as much. You know, they're just, they probably more quickly hit the wall where they realize, okay, this actually doesn't work. We actually, you know, we've been working this for months now. We're nowhere near our goal of having these three platforms at once. So let's scale it back. Maybe.
0: Yeah. Being forced to fail early, Mm. I guess is one nice aspect, right? Can you talk more about that safety net that you were referring to?
1: There's a better social welfare system in Sweden or in Scandinavia in general compared to the US. And there's not as much stigma attached to it as there is in the US. So, you know, it's not impossible to meet someone who is either on unemployment for a longer time or is on even welfare but working on something of their own. But I think along with that, besides the safety net there is also a uh, i don't know what to call it to give in to fit in the same metaphor there is the fact that university education here doesn't cost anything there's no tuition you have to pay for your books you have to pay for your living expenses and that's about it you can get both financial aid from the government to help offset that and you can get student loans that are at reasonable rates for just and the student loans you get are to cover your living expenses so it's very very different from the US so in theory, if you are university age and you are willing to live with your parents for four or five more years and they're willing to keep you, you can stay at your parents' house <laughs> and go to university at no cost, right? Your parent you know, unless your parents make you pay them rent or whatever, or start charging you for food. And I'm kind of surprised with it, that more people don't do that here, considering what a you know, what a great deal it is. But, you know, I think people take it for granted that it's I think also young people have have an urge to leave the nest. Right. So there is that.
0: Yeah. So is this like a like a basic income or is this something that you have to apply for that you could be denied? What what are the eligibility requirements
1: like for collecting welfare? Right. Yes. Basically, like if you have no job and have no money and have no resources and can show that, which is pretty easy to show. Right. I think the systems here are pretty well intertwined so that like the government knows whether or not you're you have an employer who's paying taxes into the tax authority every month on your behalf or not it's easy for them to, to then understand okay you don't have a job and therefore we can give you some social assistance you know enough to help someone get by you know it's not it, for sure not enough to help offset the cost of an act, actually renting an apartment in stockholm which is really really expensive unless you have like a you know a roommate situation you're sharing with people so I've met young people who are doing a variety of things along these lines. Not necessarily with with social welfare checks monthly, but some of them probably with. So it's like
0: unemployment. Yeah, it's like yeah. yeah. It's like
1: unemployment. But it can kick in. You get unemployment if you actually lose your job, but you can get welfare if you've never even had a job. You know, maybe, maybe you just you've graduated from university and you find that okay, the thing that I want to do, I can't find a job doing this. I'm going to try and build my own business. And meanwhile, maybe I can get some assistance. So I think that that kind of thing is a bit more widespread here than in the U.S. and does not necessarily have the same stigma attached to it as does in the U.S. That's my general impression. I can't give you any sort of actual numbers, actual facts. <laughs> this, is, this is more opinion than fact. More what, more what I think I've seen than what I actually know.
0: Out of curiosity, what is rent? run and say downtown Stockholm for an apartment.
1: It's kind of weird. So there's not actually a big first-hand rental contract market here. There are a lot of places you can buy that are like in the apartments you buy. That's like, you know, it's like a condo or a townhouse. You're paying money to actually buy the thing. And once you bought it, then you also pay a monthly fee into the association that takes care of the actual building it's in. And that's, I would say that's actually how most apartments are. In Stockholm, maybe even in all of Sweden. If you want to have a first hand rental contract in Stockholm, it's this weird thing where you have to sort of contact the building owner who probably owns many buildings and put yourself in a queue and you pay a monthly or annual fee to stay in that queue. And at some point, maybe 5, 10, 20 years in the future, you'll be at the top of the queue. And you'll be offered apartments. So there are literally people who will put their newborn child into a rental apartment queue. So that, in the hopes that by the time that they are grown up, they will have a rental apartment available to them. Wow. So that's crazy. But if you can do that, the rent for those is not too bad necessarily, which is why you know there's a high demand for the few rental apartments that there are. But there's a much bigger secondhand rental market where someone who does own their apartment or it maybe has a first-hand rental contract, will rent it out to someone else for six months or a year or whatever. And those can be like, in, if you're in central Stockholm, it can very easily get up to $2,000 a month, which is you, know, wow. this is, you know, that's not totally out of the world compared to New York City or San Francisco. It's, you know, it's a thing. And if you go a little, a little bit farther away from the city, but still within subway reach, you can kind of cut that in half for a second-hand rental contract. But even then, there's not a lot of them. And it seems to be a lot of work to get them. Like I remember, it's such a big difference. I remember when I finished college and I started looking for, or I I had a job and I was looking for an apartment in St. Paul, Minnesota. And at that time there, you could walk into sort of any, like any bank you'd walk into would have the sort of catalog of rental properties that you could pick up at the front door. And you would call around and there's, you know, there's hundreds, if not thousands of apartments for rent. And here it's, it's not really that way at all there's kind of a crisis here. I heard on the radio today that, that uh, there's someone who's in charge of the housing construction plans for Stockholm and they had a certain number of new homes, which is either apartments and or houses that they want to have built by 2020 and by 2030 and such. And it's, uh, it's difficult because Stockholm is growing rapidly in terms of the number of people moving here, but the number of homes being built, it's not really
0: keeping pace. Is it that, Folks are moving from rural areas into the city center, or are they coming from other countries into Sweden?
1: Uh, both, actually, and especially for people coming from other countries, it can be really daunting. You know, if you're coming from elsewhere in Europe or the Middle East or anywhere else, and say, okay, if I want to live in in the city and not pay through the nose for a second hand contract where I'll be forced to move in a year anyway, then I have to buy something, and I, and that's going to cost at least. Two or three hundred thousand dollars, and you have to put in a down payment of maybe 20 or 30 percent. And it's like, wow, this is not really something that someone who's young can do easily if they don't have wealthy parents. So and this is something that I know that, uh, Spotify. They kind of made some waves a few months ago. They had like an open letter to the Swedish government saying, we've got to do something about this situation. We want to have people come work for us at Spotify from elsewhere in Europe and people can't find housing. And it's just, it's very prohibitive to get people to actually come here and work here. So it is a problem, but it requires a lot of political will to solve it. And I don't know, the solutions are not really obvious.
0: There's something of a housing problem here in San Francisco. And the main problem is that, there are restrictions on how tall buildings can be Mm. basically a lot of these neighborhoods don't want large apartment complexes being built in their neighborhoods because people in San Francisco are very proud of how unique their neighborhoods can be. And it's a very strange, densely populated urban area compared to something compared to say like Manhattan. Right. And so a lot of this new building is only happening down in Soma or Potrero Hill, Mission Bay, mm-hmm. it is something similar in Stockholm that for a long time they just weren't building and couldn't anticipate the influx into Stockholm? Or how did it get this way?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot of uh, protective feeling about uh, many neighborhoods in central Stockholm, and the residents there would absolutely not want to have a high rise built across the street or anything. So there, I think there there's a fair amount of that. And I think if you compare to, say, like Manhattan, which you mentioned, which I guess has a lot of, or I don't know, has a lot, it has some amount of these rent-controlled apartments. That if you can get that, that's like a gold mine, right? Because in like the thing where people are, you know, hunting through the obituaries in the paper to find someone who died and see if they can take over their apartment, and that kind of thing does not really exist in Stockholm. So you either have it's a bit more market-driven, and at the same time, very few rental units and i don't know if that is also because of market demands that people who are building places find it more lucrative to build individual units that are for sale as opposed to renting them out or what i'm not i'm not fully up to speed with all this like i've i came to stockholm and moved into one place which we rented rented secondhand for a while and then bought it and that's it and i have not moved again so I only know what I hear from people and I have not experienced it much.
0: When did you move to Stockholm?
1: Oh, 1997. It's been almost ni- going on 19 years. It's a long wow. time. This is like the longest I've lived anywhere. Like <laughs> compared to any state I lived in the U S or, you know, I surpassed any house I had lived, lived in individually years, years ago. So it's, it's or different. Did you live in the U S? Uh, mostly in Minnesota, also in Nebraska and Illinois when I was a kid. So anyway, Stockholm housing is messed up, I guess, like housing is in many places. What you don't see here is you don't see the stories like you see in SF or elsewhere in the Bay Area of of people charging $1,000 to rent out space in a tent.
0: (laughs) Living in a tent in Stockholm seems to be free. That's good. (laughs) So forward thinking. There are people who do it, too. Yeah, there's converted closets here going for like 800 a month that probably couldn't even fit a twin bed. <laughs> Wonderful. It's absurd. So what have you been doing between jobs? You've probably had a lot of free time. Have you been programming or have you been not computing?
1: I have been not computing. It's to the point that's that nice. I have been like concerned that I may have forgotten how to do it. But I don't really think so. I've been doing this a long time. But it's somebody It's like, wow, geez, all this stuff, you know. The new stuff at WWDC that I haven't even touched yet because I've been sitting around the house for so long. So I've been like, so like I mentioned, building the same house for a long, long time. Things pile up, clutter in the garage, rooms that need painting. So it's been a lot of that kind of thing. Dealing with some of that stuff, which is good to so do. You've been refactoring. I've been refactoring the home. That's right. Right. So just in meat space. Yes. Instead
0: of in the cyber. Right.
1: Real world refactoring. Which is good to do now and then, and it's hard to do otherwise some of these bigger jobs when you either only have weekends or vacation time. None of those feel like the right time to do it. So, But I've been I've become a bit stir-crazy, so it's, it feels good to be back on the job again.
0: Are you hoping to be able to like work exclusively in Swift on your projects at this new company?
1: Yeah, I think it probably will be the case. Unless we pick up some legacy apps that need work, I anticipate that we're going to be working almost entirely in Swift um, for, for any new work. I think that you know, again, it's either if we have legacy apps or if there are customers who, for some reason, have a particular demand that they want to have new apps built in Objective-C specifically. But I think that my experience with the customers I've dealt with here in Stockholm so far when I was with Thoughtbot were that they, by and large, didn't care. So, like, I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of work in Swift the past couple of years, and people have have been fine with it. So I think we'll be working mostly in Swift, which feels good. That being said, Swift 3 is something that I've really not even touched yet. I mean, I've read about it, <laughs> but I haven't been doing it in the past, few, the past few months, so I haven't really dug into it. What's your experience being with Swift 3 so far? We talked about that you were not going to update the app you're working on to Swift 3 yet.
0: Yeah, not yet. We don't really have the time to do it. So we made the transition to Swift 2.3 at the same time that we shipped our iOS 10 feature update. Mm-hmm. And this is where we're going to be for a little bit Mm -hmm. until we have time to really go through it. Because my biggest concern is that it's going to take a lot longer to go through and actually analyze the changes we're making and not just let the uh, migrator make a bunch of code changes throughout. And I think we're going to take the opportunity to revisit all of the naming throughout Mm. the application to make it more Swift 3-like.
1: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. The value semantics of foundation are what worry me the most Mm -hmm. i'm really gonna have to pay attention right to make sure we're not screwing that up
1: yeah i can imagine that there's some tricky stuff in there that could bite you if you're not
0: paying attention to it Mm
1: -hmm.
0: any foundation type with mutable in the name right because i think those basically don't i actually don't know can you use those are they even available to you is ns mutable data a type i have no idea i
1: think that in swift 3 it's more that if you if you make a data object make a data thing and that you have it as a var, then it is essentially an mutable data, I believe. And I would guess the migrator will take care of that, right? Like if you have a, if you have a property or a local variable in Swift to point whatever that is a, a constant and it's NS data, I guess it turns it into a, a constant data. Whereas if it's a, if it's a well, I, I would hope that if it's, what you know, whether it's a constant or a variable that is an ns mutable data, that would actually map that into being a var data object. But I don't
0: know. To be honest, I'll be very impressed if the migrator can figure that out. Because hmm. it seems to do very simple in like one line replacements. And if it can look at the scope and determine that, you know, you have a constant pointer to a mutable data that you are actually mutating, hmm. that it should just be... A variable and well i guess my actual question is can they hide swift types or can they hide foundation types from a specific version of swift so i import foundation i can obviously still create i guess what would be immutable data if they take ns off Hmm. if it still exists it just seems confusing really i mean to new users yeah obviously we wouldn't use it but
1: yeah good question i really don't i don't really know so if, if you import foundation what do you get Do you get access to the actual things, or is everything automatically mapped into the way Swift 3 wants to have it, regardless? Mm -hmm. I don't really know. I
0: guess I I could see it going either way, and I haven't used it enough to know. We're in new territory here. On the flip side of that, that means that all of the methods that used to be on the mutable subclasses now have to be on the main class, but only for Swift, right? So, NSData will suddenly grow an append method. Mm -hmm. How does that only get exposed to Swift? good question
1: well i mean you can always add categories to an existing class right so if you you can add categories to ns data in a module that is only a part of swift it's not part of objective c right so you could you could add a category to ns data that is you know append bytes or whatever and if that as long as that category you're adding is only in is only Present when you're compiling with Swift and not present when you're compiling for Objective C. It has no header file, so if, if you have Objective C in your project, would not see those methods. They might still be there, but even if you tried to call them, they'd be methods that presumably, on a normal data would not do anything.
0: They're just empty implementations,
1: I guess. Hmm. I don't know.
0: I'd be very surprised if there's any Swift in Foundation, though. So they must be using some sort of directive that's in. Clang or LLVM to instruct. I'm totally lost. Yeah, to
1: selectively include something or not based on whether or not you're compiling Swift or compiling Objective C. Right. Yeah, it feels like this whole uh, Swift Objective C interop thing is becoming hairier and hairier for for each year that progresses. And I wonder where it's going to end up.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder if they're going to keep adding these sort of exceptional cases to Foundation to a point where then it just, you know, foundation is truly usable in Swift and Objective-C, or if this is a stopgap to moving over to, like, Swift foundation.
1: Well, and here's the other thing. Foundation is the Objective-C library, but a whole lot of that for a long time has been built in terms of core foundation. So maybe all of the underpinnings of the Swift versions of data and dictionary and string and what have you are all just using core foundation and the existence or not of the objective C classes called NS data and NS mutable data is irrelevant. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's it's conceivable to me because I think that's a way that that's the way that a lot of the foundation classes already are done is that they're just kind of wrappers around the core foundation stuff.
0: I think that's true. Isn't it?
1: And so the Swift equivalents could just be wrappers around that also. And the, the objective C classes are just irrelevant. In which case, you you should still be able to create NSData objects, NS data objects and NS mutable data objects. And those will be distinct from a const data or a var data. I don't know. Interesting. This requires some experimentation, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, they already are re implementing lots of core foundation directly in the Swift version of the open source Swift foundation mm-hmm. because it has to be able to run on Linux. Right. And so core foundation is a no-go, I think. I don't think that's true because I think core
1: foundation is workable on Linux. A lot of it, I think. I think. I could be wrong. So many questions. (laughs) And As usual, I just have conjecture. I don't really know.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll look into this. We should have someone on
1: our podcast who works at Apple who would just tell us, say, no, that's wrong. Or yes, that's right. Once in a while. That'd be nice. Yeah. Or we could just talk about things we know about. That's true. <laughs> stick to stick to what you know. That's what they say, right? Yeah. Mm. Well, so anyway, like I said, I I haven't been doing a lot of coding of any kind, so I don't really have much to tell. I did start looking a bit at TVML for the Apple TV stuff and it seems interesting. It seems like they've wrapped up some neat functionality into what turns into some simple calls to set things up. But on the other hand, it's all, it's all HTML and JavaScript. And it just feels like, oh, man, why does it have to be this way? Because, <laughs> you know, it's not a web browser. There's not a web view involved in this. And yet there is this markup language, which is a lot like HTML, and you're using JavaScript to run it all.
0: Have you looked at this stuff at all? Not at all. I was just about to ask you how, how does that become an Apple TV app? So it runs on iOS.
1: Well, not on iOS, but on tbOS. tvOS. So the way it works is that it's kind of like just a new, a new way of having a declarative language for specifying what's going to be in your GUI. And then the code to actually drive that, instead of writing it in Swift or to c you write it in JavaScript, and it's all exposed through a, through a DOM. So there is not a web browser, but there is a JavaScript environment, a JavaScript context that can deal with something like a navigation controller, and can deal with things like like UI view controllers, and you can have modal views, and you can. There's a navigation controller you can pop things and push things and stuff. So there are a lot of parallels. And so all the, all of these things map into what are probably, you know, in the real world, in terms of a, of a, a Cocoa Touch app on, t- on tvOS, you know, the navigation controller that you have, I think it's not called it, it's called navigation something. Maybe it's called navigation controller, I forget. The thing that you have access to from JavaScript probably is a UI navigation controller or maybe a subclass of it. That works about the same way. And so, and you can actually access that from the Cocoa side of things also. So you kind of fire up this JavaScript environment and set it running and it's doing things with your HTML like templates. But you can also insert your own views and view controllers in there in certain ways. And you can define things such that, okay, I, I can say I want to make something that is called funky table list. And then I, that is, then I can, I can define a class for that that is a subclass of UIView. Maybe, maybe it has to be a subclass of a certain special class that's under UIView. And then you can make a mapping such that if in my markup language I refer to funky table view, that's going to create an instance of this class of mine. This class I wrote in Swift or Objective C. So you can, you can mix things up a bit. So again, you're definitely not in a web browser. You're definitely creating objects in the environment that we're used to but it's a different way of doing it. So instead of storyboards or zibs and instead of doing it through code in Swift or Objective C you have a markup language for defining it. And what that gives you is it gives you some automatic layout and positioning of items and like you have stack views just like we're used to they can be horizontal or vertical and you can define the content of those stack views and there's sort of there's sort of a like default layout. And there's some talks about this I start from this summer wdc i think the one i started watching was 212 i think there's a pair of these talks i've watched part of one of them so they describe that several of the apps that are that are on the apple tv right now are just straight up TVML apps things like the movies app and the i think maybe even mm-hmm. apple music and some other ones like the, the, they they showed a list of them they're like here these five or six things are all just straight TVML apps that you could
0: essentially build yourself today so, interesting. So, so the apps that on iOS are mostly web views are probably TVML apps on Apple TV.
1: Yeah, probably so. Yeah. So, uh, so I think a lot of the apps that have the same sort of standardized view of things where you kind of see a grid of boxes or, you know, kind of a, a stack of stacks of boxes that are all sort of little images that you can swipe around and select and stuff. A lot of those things, if they come from Apple, are probably TVML, TVML
0: apps. Now this isn't new, right? Is this what the Apple TV has been using for some time? I think it's related to it. So I think like the old Apple TV, I think, uses
1: something like this. Where you know you you could only write basically you wrote your stuff entirely in a markup language in JavaScript and there was no you had no app. You had no Coco app that you that you could really touch things with. And I think that, so I think that's where they've extended it is that they've made sort of a bridge between them. So you can actually in the modern tvOS that runs on the new Apple TV, there you can actually you can implement your own views and things. Whereas if, you know, two years ago, if you were HBO, you're going to make an app and you'd have to, first of all, you have to talk to Apple and say, hey, can we do this and include it in these countries? And dah, 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 dah. And then you would get the SDK from them and you would build your stuff. And I think it was, think it was very, very similar to what is in TVML Kit today. But I never saw the old thing, so I don't really know. So anyway, it's, it's interesting, but it's also like, it feels like why do we have to step into javascript to do this like why couldn't we just do this all in swift instead like having a markup language to specify things to describe your interface in a declarative way you know that's fine and that's a viable alternative to storyboards or whatever but i feel like why do we have to use javascript to interact with this dom why couldn't we just do it all from swift and i don't really i don't really know why we can't for that matter i don't know for sure that we can't i mean they talk about doing it this way from javascript maybe it's possible to drive all this from swift also, or instead, I don't really know. I haven't dug into it yet.
0: In this dub-dub talk, do they present a reason why a developer might want to go with TVML instead of a more traditional iOS, tvOS app?
1: Yeah, so there are a few reasons. So one of which is that you can have an app that is entirely driven by data being pulled from the server. So your app might just include a single markup page and some JavaScript, and then it fetches succeeding pages from your web server. So your content of what's in your app can be entirely detached from the app that's installed in the device. So you get the same advantage you get from putting things on the web instead of in an app in general, that you can, you can change out your whole content without even updating the app. Got it. So that's an advantage. And then... It also takes away some of the hassle of, like, say you want to have, imagine something like something like the the movies app on TVOS, which is essentially a a big vertical stack of individual horizontal stacks, or like the Netflix app is the same way, where you're scrolling up and down through different categories of things, and you go into a category, you can scroll left and right on that to see the individual films. I mean, we know how to do that using stack views or using collection views or whatever we want to do it. But it's a significant amount of code to do it. Whereas using TVML, it's actually very, very simple to declare that and set it up. And you don't have to do any real coding around it at all to make it just happen. You, know, you write code that is event handler. So if someone selects your little thumbnail, you start playing the film by presenting a new view controller, essentially. You push that onto the stack. But you don't have to sort of worry about things like implementing a data source protocol for a table view or a collection view or anything anything of the kind you just very you declaratively say what's going to be in there and again that that declarative nature of the thing you're doing can all be pulled from your from your web server right so you can fetch a html page and say this is the page to render and a lot of their examples are in fact just that where they say okay our initial page we're going to render here we're just going to define that in a string you know that looks like any old XML or HTML content in a string. And then we're going to say, okay, pass this to the, you know, I forget what it's called. You pass it into the environment and say, okay, execute this and display this page. And they showed that sort of as just sort of, so you could see it, you know, in, with, in the context of a single source code file. Here's how you make a page and display it. You could just as well fetch that from somewhere else. So, I mean, there there are definitely, definitely some nice things there. And the fact that it works with, so all of the You're going to display an image in a cell, you just give it a URL and that can be a remote URL and you don't have to, you don't have to set anything up. You don't have to worry about fetching things asynchronously in the background. It does it for you just as a web browser would. So it gives you some, some of the nice features of working with the web that you can kind of forget about layout to some extent. You can forget about having to fetch resources. It just kind of does it for you, it seems Hmm. so.
0: Got it. That makes sense. I can understand why they would have done that in the early days of Apple T V when they want content providers who might not be specializing in app development to be able to create Apple TV apps. Right. In a way that doesn't also require Apple to expand their resources to build somewhat an app. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, and it makes it so that if you if you just do things their default way and don't don't even bother messing with the styling or anything then you'll get an app that looks and works just like the other apps on the platform, you know, kind of the way that iOS has been, and especially was more traditionally to say pre iOS six, right? Where you could make a table view and it would look like everybody else's table view, that kind of thing where you have, you have sort of a standardized format, but again, that is also customizable. So you can, they have a lot of attributes on the various components they give you in this markup language. So you can specify, Background colors and sizes and stuff. Basically, a CSS style of thing. Or I think I think it is CSS. In fact, yeah, it is. It is CSS. You have a style section within your document, and there you can put your CSS attributes, and then you set classes. You 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 set attributes and classes, and then you apply those classes to objects you create in the in the markup. So it's it's very it's very webby. And like you said, when they wanted to get to build stuff for the early TVs, that was the way to do it. And my thinking is that you could still do all that, and I would think you it would be nice if you could write the code for this in Swift instead. But on the other hand, the way it works now, you can download the markup language and the JavaScript, and it will run the JavaScript for you, whereas Swift would need to be compiled somewhere along the way. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I guess that is why it is the way it is.
0: Is it possible to mix and match? Like if I had a very simple view, could I use TVML for that? Or if I had something complex in a TVML app, could I... Drop into TVOS.
1: Yeah, so you can actually you can make your own UI view subclasses. Or again, I think there is there is a parent class that is itself a subclass view of UI view that you have to use. You can make your own subclasses that are compiled into your app, so they are a Swift code that you write, and then you can reference those from your mark from the markup language, and you can create instance of that. So, so you can make your own complex views that are totally you know. Using all of the stuff that we like to use and are you know using Core Graphics and whatever you want to do, they're then referenced from the markup language. And so that's a, that's kind of a big difference compared to the web, right? in the web, if you want to make your own views, you have to write that in web technologies. You can't really write a native component. Well, you sure you can, but then we're talking about like Flash, right? But there's not really a good way to write a native component that is put into play by something in an HTML file and have it run in Chrome. Like, that's just not really a thing. Whereas here it is because you know what the target platform is. It's a TVS device. You're building an app so you can compile your own view classes in there and access them. Mm -hmm. And the other way around, I think, ought to work also where you could could have a standard Cocoa Touch app and at some point you create your JavaScript environment and you take the view from there and stick that into an existing navigation hierarchy i think that i think that is also workable because and the the code for doing all that like they also show the example code for setting up and kicking off an app like this it's it's all a code base it's not like magic storyboard loading code like where you know a, a call to something loads up storyboard like it's not like that at all it's very much okay we create this javascript execution context and we pass it some stuff and then we place that into uh into our ui window i think that's how it works got it so It's a manual process, which you you should be able to do at any point within your app. I mean, the examples they show are doing it when the app launches, but you should really do it any time, I would imagine. So I I think it's it's, it's interesting. I think there could be an interesting mix of things there, but I haven't really had a chance to use it yet. I'm looking for, I'm trying to think of a good, something I would like to build that would use it. That's an easy spot to get stuck on for me sometimes is that, okay, I have some technology. I want to try it out but i don't really have a use case for it and so everything you do can tend to sort of feel contrived like okay sure i can follow this example that i found but all i've done is rebuild what they just built like i would like to have a new idea to try it with sometimes
0: right yeah something content heavy
1: yeah and yeah that's what that's what TVL, TVML is all about it's all about content heavy stuff you know you've got things on a server somewhere and you want to be able to serve it up and i don't really have that so kind of think of something. So, anyway, it's 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 mm-hmm. kind of fun to to look at at least. I haven't really tried it much. Some of the they have some example code that that seems to be right there in Xcode, but on the other hand, it's something it I tried to open up and it was like missing entire like huge swaths of the <laughs> of the hierarchy of files that should be there. You open up Xcode and it's just all red. So, I don't know. Maybe there's a separate download I have to grab. I'm really sure.
0: But uh yeah, it seems cool. Very cool. Quick aside before we wrap up, mm-hmm. I'm just opened up Twitter. Twelve South, the creator of, you know, Mac accessories, like I think they make like laptop stands, uh, etc. They have created a candle mm-hmm. that is new Mac smell. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm not sure how I feel about this. You know, the funny thing is, that I sometime,
1: probably about ten years ago, I wrote I wrote a song called New Mac smell. I will you we have to link to this we have to link to this <laughs> it's only in my head actually I recorded the song but then I, I eventually I did make a recording of the song but with entirely different lyrics because I thought it was a bit too nerdy for me I don't know what I was thinking it's perfect I need to revisit this re-record the original lyrics which I'm sure I have somewhere
0: please please do that I think
1: at some point there was some rhyme it's hard to rhyme with new Mac smell necessarily I there was something about H.P. Ordell not being able to match the new Mac smell. Something like that. I have to, I have to get on this again to figure this out. This is amazing. <laughs> anyway, new Mac smell candle. That
0: is exciting. I need, I need it. I'm writing that down. It's hard to rhyme with new max smell. <laughs> Great. All right. I have to go to a meeting now. All right. So let's wrap this up. Yep. Let's do it. Show notes for this episode will be available at buildphase.fm 109. And as always, we'd like to hear from you. So reach out on email at hosts at buildphase.fm or on Twitter at buildphase. And we really appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. All right, good show. Yep, good job. Thank you. Catch you next time. All right, later.